0: You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bassell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker and my first feature film, The Alternate will be coming out later this year. I, I have the release date. I'm not sure if I should announce it. I think maybe I should. Can I announce it, Liz? How does this work?
0: Yeah. if you. Yeah. How's it going to hurt? I don't see how that's going to hurt.
1: September 13th, the movie Aww. is coming out. We don't know where or how, but that's the release date. So keep your eyes open for it.
0: Congratulations. My bread and butter release date was September 1st. So September hey, September's Ooh. a good month. I am Liz Manishal. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on a smattering of others. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative, and I do sales.
1: And you do sales. You'll be my sales agent one day, Liz. Woohoo. This week, we welcome writer-director Naveen Param on the show to talk about making his first feature, The Last Victim, which hits theaters on May 13th, and he talks about how he made it over the course of eight years, how the film was financed, and why it took him so long to direct his first feature after he, like, was producing for, like, over a decade and producing successful things, like, you know, it was very interesting. After that, Liz asked me a question about piracy, which I'm excited to discuss, but first, Liz, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing good. I'm trying to think of film-wise what's on, what's on deck. I think w- only thing worth even talking about for our little our little back and forth here is I'm trying to not take on more than what a director is supposed to take on. Do you know what I mean? Like you're in development on something and like I'm noticing my film team like expects me to be the secretary of the film team and like they expect me to send out the zooms, they expect like if if I don't schedule it, no one else will schedule it. And I realized, like, I'm going to stop doing these things that I normally would be doing because they're not my job. And I'm just going to be the director. Like, I'm going to come up with the cast list, if they ask. And I'm going to work on the deck, if they ask. But I'm not going to, like, try to control everything. So that's what's going on for me right now. What about you?
1: Well, I have a comment first. So this is kind of what I was talking about or getting at when we were talking about projects, I think, last week or the week before. Like there needs to be some person who is the force of the project to push it forward, right? There has to be somebody who is like setting all the meetings, making sure people are doing the things they need to do, pushing the, the boulder up the hill, right? And like normally that's the director if it's like, you know, your own project that you wrote and that you're, you're, you you want to make happen. But like in your case, like you're a hired on director, you're not that person but it's so interesting that everyone's looking to you to be that person, and like they want, they want to hire that person. But it's like, like you, you morons don't understand. No offense to your team, that that person is not hireable. Yeah. That person has to be born from the project. Like there needs to be someone who's like, this is my baby. And I will like, you know, fight tooth and nail to make sure that it happens. And if you don't have that person, movie don't happen. It's not going to happen. You know, in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. but that's No, what it feels I think like. you're
0: totally right. I think though it complicates it, at least in my world, and I'm not going to generalize and say this is gendered for every Everyone in the world. But what complicates it is that I've been an assistant and I am a lady and I, I really resent the expectation to take on administrative, administrative tasks. The problem is exactly what you're talking about, which is the administrative tasks are actually what drive projects. It's the weirdest thing. Like if you don't schedule the call, the call won't happen. If you don't organize the schedules, you can't schedule the call. And it, I mean, I guess it's not that weird because like administrative work drives our bureaucracies. So like, I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but I'm just trying not to, to do it too much because I don't want that expectation to be. I remember I worked at Sundance and my boss expected me to schedule calls for him that I wasn't going to be a part of. And I had to tell him, I'm like, if I'm on the call, I will schedule it. That's my job as manager of this department. But if it's your call, that's your job. And he understood. And we're in a world right now where there shouldn't be expectations from the only female member of the crew to be the one honoring the calendar
1: right or, or the director even and since you're both yeah it's like i think that's like it, sh- it should be the person who is hiring you <laughs> that person who brought you on they're the ones who need to be assigning all the meetings like setting all the schedules pushing the boulder up the hill because they're the one whose project it is yeah you're just a piece of it you know and so I don't think people get that. Like people like think if they, they hire a producer, they hire a director. It's like that is like going to be the person who's going to take it off their hands and make their dreams come true. If you find the right producer, you find the right director. But that is not how it is. They're just a piece. So if it's your project, you're the one to do it all. Right, and I I love that you're drawing that line in the sand to be like, this is not my thing. I will do my job, but I'm not doing everyone's job. Yeah, which is which is essentially what you have to do on this your own project. You kind of have to do a little bit of everyone's job in order for it to to at least get started. You know,
0: but then it pays off, right? Because then you move forward with your project that you care about.
1: Right. And I think that's the difference between someone who makes their own stuff and someone who just works on stuff is like, you're willing and able to do it. You know, like I was was just talking to somebody the other day and they were like, they just freely admitted. They're like, you know, I've had my own project I wanted to make for years, but I keep on not doing it. And I realized that I am not the person who to do this. Like, I just don't have the desire or the whatever it is to to do what, you know, a filmmaker does. And it's like, it's interesting to have that, you know, and maybe that's not going to be true forever. Maybe that's just true for that moment in that person's life. But to come to that realization that you're not <laughs> the person to like push the boulder up the hill, because it's literally that hard, people. Like, I'm not, it's not even like, it's like an analogy, but it's it does feel that way. Like, you literally have to do every little thing to make sure the thing happens. So, yeah. For me, what's going on? I've got a pitch this week. <gasps> Ooh, pitch time. Yeah. Exciting. I don't remember. We probably talked about it on the show, but I pitched a bunch of ideas to a, a production company, some investment people, and they finally came back and they liked two of the ideas. And I'm pitching against, I think, three other ideas. And so they, they're saying, okay, well, we like both, but do, let's do this one first. And then if this one doesn't work out, then we can talk about pitching the other one after. But yeah, it's a whole thing. We might go to Prague to shoot it potentially this is a prog-based company
0: that's so exciting i don't know
1: it's nuts it's crazy well i mean it's 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 so it's so early like you know we had a little pre-meeting about it yesterday and we were like researching the company and everything and we're like sort of getting like some like you know some ideas of what is happening here and like what the situation is but we, we don't only really have very much information we have very little and so we're going to go into the meeting probably with like m- as many questions as answers you know and it's going to be like a pitch but it's going to be more like a two-sided pitch cuz like we're going to be like okay well pitch us like how do you expect to do this how are you expecting to do that like you know, if you have X amount of dollars, like what, why is it going to be a, a product production? Why don't we shoot somewhere else? Like what, you know, because it's all these things that like aren't lining up based off of the information we're given. And we're like, okay, well, we, we need to get the details in order to actually properly, you know, do what they're at. Because they, they basically said, <laughs> they're like, we want to see a deck. We want to see a budget. And if you have a script, we want to see the script. And we're like, well, we can't budget it until we know <laughs> like more about what we're trying to do. Like we, this is too early to budget, right? And so basically we're going to come in and be like, well, we're not providing a budget for you because it's it's just premature. Like it's not time to budget yet. We have to like get more information, get to know each other better, like kind of figure things out. And then if you guys want to move forward, And, like, this project's actually something that can be made, then we'll put a budget together and and take the next steps, you know? So, I'm not sure if that's what they want. (laughs) Like, I think they just want us to do the things they ask for. But it's like, I think instead we're going to come back to them with, like, you know, our experience and our professional, you know, knowledge of how to make a movie. And be like, well, before we can do these things like this, that's actually going to be real, that numbers that really will be true, like, because I couldn't give you a budget that says anything, but it's not actually going to be real unless I know more information. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it.
0: That's really exciting. Well, first of all, just talking to anyone who ever has money, I get so excited. Just like, oh, you have money? You want to make a movie? Like, that's, it always feels like very rare to even get to have that chat. And then that they're really thinking and listening to your ideas and you have the chance to like sell. That's really thrilling.
1: Yeah. it's was funny because I was talking to, to Jeff, my producer, who's going to join on, on the pitch and. He he gets this all the time. He says he always hears about a company, a new company, or somebody who has money or whatever. And then when you actually have the meeting, 99% of the time, it's like they don't actually have the money. They have the connection to the money. And there's all these like stipulations on how the money will come into play if you can do this for them. And then it's like, you know, you're like, wait, that's not how it works. (laughs) Right. So, you don't actually have any money. You need me in order for you to get the money. And I can't bring you the money you need to get your money. It's like, you know, all this weird stuff. But
0: all of filmmaking is chicken and egg. It's always like, right? <laughs> like what comes first? And they never know what comes first. And they're always waiting for the other party to come first. But still, right. it's something to talk about. It's something to practice. It's a chance to be in yeah. the room. Like, these are all amazing things.
1: And it's, it's interesting. It's not my it's not my project. I didn't write it. So, like, I, I read it. And I fell in love with it. And so, we're partnering with the writer. And so, it's going to be me, the writer, and, and my producer, Jeff, on the call. And it'll be really interesting to do this three, three-way three pitch. And it's like the first time, I think. I mean, I think the writers pitched stuff before. But this is the first time, like, him doing it in a group. And, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to learn a lot, I think, no matter what happens.
0: Yeah. Let us know what happens.
1: Exactly. But another thing that you can make happen is uh, go to www.patreon.com slash mmihpodcast to support us on Patreon. We've had a lot of, lot of lovely people supporting us uh, on the platform lately. A lot of happy birthdays that we've been able to give out. So thank you all for checking that out. There's also lots of fun things happening on the Patreon, especially we're going to have a bonus episode. That's Patreon exclusive bonus episode coming out in the next couple weeks. So that's very exciting. You can also check out uh, Jambox.io, which is a new role. World- free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, and they've worked with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs. So, definitely go check them out. We have a promo code, MMIH. Get 20% off your subscription. And it's not just the first month, it's 20% off the whole deal. So, check it out. But without any more blither-blather, here's our chat with Naveen Shatrapuram.
0: Let's kick things off with our first question, which is not even really a question. It's something that you always do, Naveen. Can you just describe the elevator pitch for The Last Victim or just describe what it's about?
2: Yeah, I would say The Last Victim lives in the same world as No Country for Old Men or Hell or High Water. So when we went into making it, I love the the romantic Southwest, you know, the, the vast deserts, the isolation, those things, but also the grit that comes with the genre. So I would say it's a gritty thriller. That takes place in a small in a small town in the southwest, and it brings up all those imageries that we've all grown up with. At least I have grown up with, you know, watching films from like Sergio Leone to Coen Brothers. So that's that. In the thriller it has uh, three storylines. One one is of this character Jake. He is typically, you know, he would be referred to as an antagonist, but in this case, you know, we don't say it's an antagonist or a protagonist but but jake's character there's a sheriff hickey and then uh there's an anthropologist and her husband who are driving through town so it it pulls up you know i would say homages to films like uh breakdown but at the same time hell or high water and you know deliverance deliverance is one of the films that we Mm. originally when we came with the story that was that was one of our inspirations awesome getting me excited over here how many days did you shoot the film so we shot for 19 days originally planned it for about 25 days and I, and I was fighting tooth and nail to keep every one of those days but uh, as we got closer to production i had to face reality and i was like so it went down to 18 days, and we had a glitch on one of the days. So we had we got a bonus day through insurance. So so that's that's the 19th day.
0: What was the rough budget, or what can you talk about with regarding with regard to budget?
2: I would say it's uh, sub five million. You know, under five million dollar budget, and we shot it in Canada to take advantage of their incentives, and also when you know you go across the border, there's the dollar arbitrage. So because of those two reasons, we we went to Canada.
0: Is, can you give a low-end range? I mean, you don't have to give a number, but it <laughs> over 800,000 and under yes. 5 million. No,
2: okay. I'll, I'll be honest. It's over 2 million, under okay. 5 million. Think, think. thank. thank. That's yeah, there helpful. we go. Yeah, Love yeah. It. <laughs> How did you come up with the idea for the film? It's a very interesting story. Um... It was back in about 2002. I was introduced to this gentleman named Dr. Neil Justin. He was an anthropologist professor who lived outside of Tucson, Arizona. And he was introduced to me uh, through an uncle of mine. And I had just finished my first independent film as a physical producer, like a nuts and bolts producer. And So, I talked to Doc and he told me to fly down to Arizona. It was my first trip. I grew up mainly in Chicago and I had only been exposed to like New York, Chicago, LA, all the urban sort of centers. And it was my first sort of trip down to the Southwest. And I went over there and Doc brought about four folders and he had these uh, magazine cutouts. You know, that was his way of creating like these posters for these films. And so he had like four or five ideas and one of them, on the fuller had written The Last Victim. And he's like, he asked me what I knew about making films and writing scripts and, you know, producing it and budgeting it. And being young and just off my first film, I was pretty arrogant. And I said, I know everything. (laughs) Not everything, but I just said like, oh yeah, (laughs) I know exactly what to do and and things like that. And we got to writing it together. He had written a couple of paragraphs about it. And I loved it because he had referred like his inspiration as deliverance. Uh, It was a husband and wife who were driving through the small town in Arizona. And then they come across these bad guys who are trying to get rid of these bodies. So th- that was the original inspiration for it. We wrote a script. We were going to shoot it in 2004. And right before production, our major location was on Mount Lemon and Mount Lemon burnt down. So we pushed it at the time for a year, but then you know it just got shelled until about 2017 when I wanted to direct my directorial debut. I was going through scripts that I had. Like shortlisted from the past, and I was like, "Hey, this is a great genre piece that that is interesting. It's contained. It's in the desert, and something that I think I could handle." So I I went ahead and picked up the script. I reached out to a up-and-coming writer, Ashley James Lewis, whose scripts I had read on the Blacklist forum, and uh, I had shortlisted him because you know he had a great voice. He had his you know his his writing resonated with me, and he loved the bones, or he loved the structure of the last victim and and he said he'd be happy to jump in and and when he brought back his notes and stuff like that it was it was in line with my vision so I told him to go and write it and he wrote it and the script was great and i loved it and that's how it started
0: I just wrote down like five questions while you were. T- <laughs> I have lots of questions. You do sort of answer this, but I'm going to ask you again to see if you can add more color. How long did you spend working on the film from coming up with the idea till it's release? So maybe could you add more color from 2005 to 2017? Did you do anything at all on this film during those 12 years?
2: Not at all. From about 2005 to 2017, I was just, you know cutting my teeth in the business. And this sort of had faded to the background. It would come once in a while because it would call out. Cause I, I loved the title. I loved the setting. So it would call out. And it was not until when I was yeah, I was at a point in my career where I had to choose a path. You know, do I become do I continue on the path as a producer or do I pivot and decide to direct? That was the original reason I got into the business. And so I knew I had to start from scratch. Everything that I had done... I mean, obviously the relationships, a lot of the experience would help me, but I had to basically say, okay, I got to put a stop to this and uh, I got to start from scratch here. And at that time, I was like, I needed something that, that that's, at the time I felt would be manageable and, and that's contained. But as this film would prove, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. And I hear that in the podcast. I, I guess making any film even when you've done multiple films, you know going to any film, uh, t- you know it's it's a it's a it's a learning process. But have but going back to your question, I literally started September of 2017 on this particular version of the movie, and it's taken about four and a half years to get here.
1: Wow, that's not that long. <laughs> compared to some other projects but again you've had this experience anyways so last question is compared to all the other projects you've made how difficult was this project
2: like i said uh, it, it was one of the hardest things that i've ever done and it tested it pushed my limits mentally physically it tested i mean it it, it came to a standstill multiple times and it took that I that I, you know, that I had everything that I had to push it to the next level, you know. And let me go talk about some. I mean, I can go from financing it to the actual production. You know, the production was planned during like the heat of summer, but as we were in prep, it got it kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. And we we went right into winter and you know, 95% of the movie happens out in the wilderness. So it was sub-zero temperatures and, you know, support was at least 100, 200 yards away multiple times. So for you to get a heater you know, you need to huddle in a tent that's 100 yards away with, you know, propane tanks. I would say 19-day shoot, and it was very ambitious. The script was ambitious so to make it happen. And the daylight started dropping to like, you know, towards the end of the shoot, it was like 9am to 3pm, and and we're losing light. And we're shooting on this waterfall scene where everything is slick and slippery. And it's like uh, salmon spawning like region. So it's, you know, we have to follow these things. So, so, like every step of the way, from production to post production, we wrapped December twenty nineteen, and we were just getting into post production. I was I was supposed to fly. To New York to get the edit process started, and the pandemic hit, so we had to really figure it out. And you know, I never thought in my life that I would edit a picture remotely, so I had to figure out how to do that. And we started editing in July, so something that should have started in February got pushed to July. But at the same time, it was enlightening. It was it was a lot of fun. You know, we had a lot of fun. I have have a great team, and that I was grateful. To have you know in my corner so so it was like on one hand it was pleasure but on the other hand it was it was painful and and I pushed the limits and I'll and I'll give a little story so when I switched from producer to director i had a lot of insecurities you know because I had built this artificial image of me as a quote-unquote financier producer so a lot of people looked at me as like a like a financier. So a lot of times when I see those type of producers who want to direct, it's met with like scoffs or they're like oh here comes another guy who, you know, wants to make a fool of himself as a director. You know, like that that's the kind of impression at least that was my insecurity. So I hired this uh, professional coach, a uh, life coach to sort of get my mindset in the right place for me to go tackle this. His name is Tommy Baker, and he's incidentally out of Phoenix. So I worked with him for about three months online through video conferences and everything. and And then he said he wanted me to fly down to Phoenix. And he wanted me to clear the day before and he said, do nothing, but think about the goal you came here to achieve. So it was February 22nd, 2019. So I sat there and thought of making this movie, and the whole thing in my heart and my mind and my soul was just to just to make this movie. And on the 23rd, he told me to show up at the foothills of this little national park. And he said, uh, show up at like 4.30 in the morning. So I took an Uber the next day, bright and early. And I didn't know. I, I thought Phoenix was going to be a lot warmer, but it was like probably 29 degrees, 30 degrees at the time. Because it was february so i go there and i'm at the foothills of the mountain and this is the first time i'm meeting this person in real life and you know he walks up and says i hope you came prepared and i was like yeah i'm prepared i'm, I'm ready and he said okay so we jog up this like little hill you know and it's and it's 10 minutes in i'm um, panting i'm um, you know I, I can't breathe and all this other stuff and we get on top of this hill and he goes are you ready to get started? And I thought we we're going to just do a jog and we're going to meditate or something. And, you know, we're going to go to a conference room, whiteboard, and he's going to tell me how to reverse engineer my way to making this movie. And then behind this like hill is this mountain. And I forget the name of the mountain. And he's like, okay, we're we're running up that mountain. And about 10% of the way in, I feel like I'm blind. I'm breathing, you know, my entire body's in pain. And I can't. And and he kept saying to me, like, just keep saying the purpose why you're here. So I, I would say to myself, the last victim, the last victim. And there was a point. So the trail, you know, is is sort of winds up, but there's like rocks in between. There was a point that I couldn't see one step ahead of me. And I started like, I lost the trail and I started climbing these rocks. And he said, Oh, that's good. That's good. Now you're forging your own path. <laughs> You know, but it got to a point where you can only think about the next step and then the next step and then the next step. You can't think about the mountain. You can't think about what's ahead of you. And we got about 90% on top of the mountain. And I couldn't, I didn't think I could make another step. And he walks up and he grabs this 25 pound rock and he brings it to me and he t- tells me to hold it. And at that time, wishful thinking, I go, okay, he's gonna do some ritual. He's gonna leave it on the side of the mountain, you know, and 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 then we're gonna walk down. And then he goes, the rest of the path, you're gonna run up with this rock in your hands. And and I and trust me, like it was freezing. That's why I said the, the rock was like probably like ice holding ice. And we go up to the rest of the mountain. And once we got up there, the sun was just cracking over the horizon and it was a beautiful view. And he said, look, this rock is all the baggage that you're going to leave on top of this mountain and you're not, you're not going to take down. And he said, this mountain is metaphorically your movie. And every time you, you doubt yourself, you think you cannot make that next step, you think of this mountain, think of where you are. And he said, There's gonna be, there are going to be plateaus, there are going to be dips, there are going to be climbs but whatever comes, just think of this mountain. And there cannot have been a better way to start the process of this movie because I was definitely on my knees. I was definitely blind all the time. I had to say one more step, another step, another step until even like last week when we were getting ready for the trailer launch. So it's true. And I'm sure it's true for me over the next few months as well.
0: Oh, my God. I, wow. Like, no question. Well, Alrick will right, cool, come up with a good question. I have a practical question, but I think yes. I feel like intimidated by asking a question after that story <laughs> is what I'm, <laughs> what I'm acknowledging here, because it's such a beautiful story. What struck me in the beginning of the conversation, Naveen, is you were saying, you know, someone said, you know, what's your experience? Can we make this movie? And you said, you know, the follies of youth or whatever, you know, you had a level of confidence that said, yeah, I can do anything. I'm a filmmaker. I, I produced yes. my first feature. Absolutely. What was... The plan to finance and make that first iteration of The Last Victim versus the one in 2017, because there's this like amazing story you have in between where it seems like the film became unsurmountable, but Mm -hmm. you started out with like a lot of confidence and, and maybe even some conceit about what you were embarking on. So, I'm just curious about like what the plan was before and then what changed to make it feel so hard.
2: Absolutely. So, the first time we were going to make it, the film was financed. Doc was going to finance it. It was his dream to make a movie. He was an anthropologist. He had done so many different careers that his dream was to make a movie. So, he said, look, I have half a million dollars set aside. We're going to make this movie. So. I stayed in this ranch, and every day we would meet at this coffee table, and like we'll start at 8 a.m. and we will work till 8 p.m. We'll probably take breaks for, and we wrote the script that way. And then I had just learned, you know, movie magic, budgeting, and scheduling. So I showed him how to schedule the film. We had, you know, scheduled for 25 days. He had already pre-planned the location, so he took me up to like Mount Lemmon, a lot of the deserts, and and he said, hey, you know, what do you think, like us doing this here, us doing that there. He would take me to trailer parks. And additionally, I mean, you know, now after something like what happened at, on the set of Rust, it's it's scary, but Doc had 300 guns in his house, right? He's a, he's a gun collector. So he had like a safe and he would open up and he said, you know, he would have these ivory handled pair of Colts and Smith & Wessons and all these things, you know? So... So, we would go out to the desert and with like a cans and we would shoot it. But he had also like fake guns. So, he would say, Hey, we would use these fake guns on, on set and everything like that. So, the plan for it was pretty set. My job was just to figure out the nuts and bolts aspect of it. First, I was going to co direct with him. So, he was going to be quote unquote the director. But based on my experience, I was going to help him co direct. And then I would also produce in the process and then put together the crew team cast and everything like that and and the only casting we were going to do was we were probably going to get one cast member out of LA to show up for 5 days or something like that that was the original plan so from that standpoint, it, w- it was not going to be that hard to do it because you know D- Doc was going to finance it, and it was just putting together this. But the second I decided to, and also when I decided to direct it, I forgot to mention one thing. There was a Serendipitous thing that happened around the time when I wanted to direct. There was a Serendipitous thing that happened. Doc called me, and and he said uh, it, there was a voicemail on my phone. And I, and I kept in touch with Doc over the years. And Doc called me and left him as a saying, "Naveen, we're making the last victim, and you're going to direct it." So I called him, and 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 I found out that Doc wanted to make it. And he said, "Look, this time you're going to direct it." Um, he's 82 years old now, and he knew, you know, he was not going to be able to direct it. But it was his dream to make it. So I went to now, with my experience, I went to Arizona and he said, uh, We're going to make it for half a million dollars. And then I saw he had hired a local producer who had done a budget. And with my experience, I knew that with that kind of a budget, with that kind of a situation, 90% of chances is that, you know, the film was not going to recoup its money. So I talked to Doc and I said, Look, you know, at the time I thought maybe we'll increase the budget to a million dollars and let me figure out how to make it and we'll, we'll do it. But the film, kept growing in the pre-production process where at some point in time doc said look i cannot i cannot look i can't but i bless I, i want you to do this i want you to go make this so one of my goals is in the next month or so fly to tucson and screen the movie for him Yep."
1: Wow. So many questions. So, so many things to ask. We'll just stay on this track just since you mentioned it just recently. we talked about half a million dollars, then going to a million dollars. Then you said that your budget is over $2 million and we don't know exactly how much. But what, what I want to know is like, what, what was the process of trying to raise... The additional funds. Like, did you take some of Doc's money plus some other money from someplace else? Did you find one investor to fund the whole thing? Like, what was your process
2: to get to the budget for the film? Absolutely. So, so what Doc's money helped me do, and and I say this to all my fellow filmmakers, this is what's worked for me. What Doc's initial funds helped me do was I got a I got a script written by Ash Lewis that I was really happy with. And I knew from my producing experience that it's gonna get some attention, you know. And the way I did it is I sent it to a few colleagues of mine, one of my colleagues, Todd Berger, ended up producing this film with me. I sent it to him and said, you know, I wanna direct and I want you to read the script. And a sign that a script is going to let you make the movie or let it get financed is when someone responds saying, what do you want me to do? Instead of saying, great script, what do you want to do? A lot of the times you get a response saying, what do you want me to do? Why did you send it to me? You know. So I sent it on a Friday to Todd and Sunday, Todd responded saying, great script, let's talk. And then as soon as I called him, he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, hey, would you want to produce this with me? So going back to your question, script, it got it got a script done. I got a budget done by a line producer. I got a schedule done by a line producer. And I created a, a deck. And I think by this time, you know, with a little bit of travel and everything like that, I had probably spent $13,000 you know? And then my goal was to get, because of my experience, right? Like in the past, I had done permutations and combinations trying to figure out what the next step is. So I needed one more thing. Now that I had a producer, I had a script budget schedule, I needed a casting director to sort of shortlist names for me. So I called uh, a casting director that I had worked with, Lisa Essary. And I said, look, you know, we're trying to make this movie. So she looked at it and she said, you know, do you, do you have any financing in place? And at the time, yes, Doc's half a million dollars was sitting in the bank. So I said, yes, half of the money is in the bank, and we're going to probably have to raise the other half. And I have Todd Berger who's helping me out. And that definitely helped. So she then shortlisted names for Jake, Susan, and the sheriff. So I would say that was the base. And that's about the point when once we got the cast is when Doc basically decided to back out. But I at least had the building blocks... At the time, for me to say, okay, now let me start. So my goal was to get at least Doc's amount replaced. So I called a lot of friends, you know, who I had worked with through the, pa- in the well, past.
1: Just sorry to interrupt, really yeah. quick. So you spent thirteen thousand dollars. So did you just give him the rest of his money back, and then you say, oh, I owe you thirteen thousand, or like how does how does that work
2: when he backs so that so out of the movie? It's not that I was giving any money back. It was in a it was in his account at the time. Uh, okay. I hadn't even because you know until I had f- figured out everything and we started an LLC and all those things, I didn't want the money to be moved. So he was uh-huh. writing checks, but I but I needed to be in a dedicated account so I can tell people hey the money's available. So it wasn't a dedicated account, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. I, you know, by the time we had the casting director, it had gone up to about twenty two thousand dollars and change. So what I said is, look, this is going to be your investment in the movie, and when when the film recovers, this is when you're going to get your money uh-huh. back. And he was totally fine with that. And and he exactly exactly.
0: Wait, and you were telling us about replacing his investment, right? So, yes. I, I, please continue. I'd love to hear more.
2: <laughs> yes, please oh, tell us. So, <laughs> so, what ended up happening was I was having multiple conversations and right before this i had run this company with a few other individuals and in, based out of singapore called indus media and entertainment so i had some contacts with you know family offices and investors and those those sort of things and i called who is now one of our producers frank lee and i said hey look you know i got this project this is a list of actors you know it looks like we're going to be able to put together pretty good cast around this project and that you know it's it's going to have a market like from just sales as licensing to you know international distributors and and and, and definitely is going to have a domestic distributor so it was a process going back and forth i mean i reached out to a, you know tons and tons of people got rejected from a lot of quarters but frank also reached out to his network and finally we were able to find an investor who came up with the equity that we needed And fortunately, without going too much into the detail, I have one major investor. Then I have another equity investor who put in a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then the rest of it I had to, you know, finance through tax credit and then a mezzanine financing and gap financing. Cause until I, you know, every like, you know, when we were done with filming, we were able to get tax credit financing to go. Just a few more steps. And then I got the mezzanine and the senior debt for me to finally get to complete the movie. So, there were a lot of challenges for us to overcome to to get it completed.
0: Can you talk a little bit about contracts? Just because like the retelling of your relationships with Ashley James and Doc is like... It could it could live in a romantic world where there's just honor and and agreements and handshakes, but it it could also live in a world where there's like very specific ownership and contract points between you. And I'm curious which pathway you chose.
2: Absolutely. So with Doc, just because you know he comes, uh, you know he's an old timer from a completely different generation. It was a lot of handshakes, and you know he did business like that all his life. So I had known him for X number of years, so I I knew he was good uh, for the money. So it was just pretty much a shake hand, and I said I was going to do these things, and and he honored it. So so that was a like you said, it lived in a romantic or a dream scenario. But on the other hand, so with Ash, it was it was a you know work for hire, and and it's it's an advance payment with a kicker when the film gets greenlit, and he gets X percent of the budget, you know, mm. Mm. and that was that. For for Ash, like as the budget
1: increased, did did his the fee increase too? And like, does that continue to happen as you go on, or is it more like it's whatever the budget was? Like when you went into production, that's what they're
2: getting paid the percentage off. The fee the fee definitely increased, but since it's his first uh, film, we had put in a ceiling. So Ah. if the budget had gone, I mean, the budget did go to a level where it did hit a ceiling. But until it hit Hmm. his ceiling, it hit the ceiling. His rate kept getting increased. That's smart.
1: Okay, so I'm I'm very curious about oh god, what was the question, Ulrich? You had it. You had it and it fell fell through the cracks. So
0: Damn. I have a question and then you can interrupt me, but interrupt me if it comes. Go, go, You live in Chicago, you grew up in Chicago. I mean, like, so we always have this conversation about LA, New York, outside of those production hubs. Curious, it sounds like all your resources came from overseas or Arizona. So did the Chicago filmmaking community, was it a part of this project?
2: So it seems like it came from overseas, but... Actually, it came from all over the, all over the US based on my experience working as a producer, you know? So I'll just uh, tell you the story. Like 2002, after finishing my first film, I went to LA and I was really nervous and we were taking meetings to, you know, get the film distribution. At that time, I had created this card saying my name and it said producer. But I was very shy to give it because I felt like I was an imposter. I had just done this movie and I was calling myself a producer, you know, that kind of thing. But what happened in LA was there were a lot of young people my age. Who were handing producer cards back to me. And I would ask them, like, what have you done? And and, I mean, and God bless them, right? (laughs) I I struggled in the business for 20 years to get to this point, but they'd be like, oh, I have this in the works. I have that in the works. I have, I'm meeting with so and so. And, and so the fear that I had was, hey, if I move to LA and I start giving this, you know, card out, I'll get lost in this, in the sea and I would not be able to. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to Chicago and I'm going to use that as my, strength and I, i'm i'm going to build it from here and when i need and and this is not all like you know thought through in hindsight it all looks like wisdom like i had all this wisdom you know it was just stumbling crawling you know forging i mean you know you can do like my way through the business and now looking back it's like okay that seemed like a smart decision that seemed like a dumb decision but you know based on you know, the, the responses that I got from the decisions that I made. But that was my original reason to come back to Chicago. A lot of great support from Chicago, my associate producer, Gustavo. So a lot of the prep was done in Chicago. And, and I have a film fraternity that here that I lean on. For a lot of things. So during editing, I edited from here, but a lot of filmmaker friends would come. And in my in this office space, there's a conference room, which would screen the film. So I would get a lot of feedback from filmmaker friends and things like that. So, so yes, Chicago, but then I have friends in LA and New York. And now in British Columbia, where we where we shot this, where our great crew came from.
1: So I remember my question now. I wanted to know what mezzanine financing was because I've I've heard of gap financing before, but I've never heard of mezzanine, or at least I don't know what the details are. So if you could explain that for us, that'd be awesome.
2: Absolutely. So so senior or gap is someone who helps you f- complete the movie. So so get it's like a last in first out position, as you know, but. R- someone who sits right behind it. So they 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 are senior to the equity financiers, but they are junior to the gap financiers. So they sit in between the the senior lenders and the equity. I see. Financiers. Yeah. Okay, nice, awesome.
1: I have I have one of those gap financiers on my project. So, didn't even know it until, you know, you just explained it to me. Yeah. So the next thing I, w- I really want to know, and, and I'm a, I'm a big IGN fan. I've been, you know, going to that site since, you know, the early days before anyone knew what the fuck it was. But, uh, how did you get that deal? Like, was that something that you just, that you went through your distributor to get? Did you have to go through an agent? Like, how did you
2: negotiate the trailer uh, premiere through IGN? It was all through the distributor. So Decal is our distributor and. You know, I was on a strategy call and they were like, look, we're going to drop the trailer through IGN. And they had done some research through the PR group, DDA. So I think DDA has the relationship with portals like IGN. And they said, hey, this is a you know elevated genre piece, and uh, this would be a great place for us to premiere it. And IGN said uh, they would do a, a two-hour exclusive launch for the trailer. And I'm a fan too. like Ash Lewis, my writer, he introduced me to IGN. So I became a fan of IGN and I was really stoked to find out that it's gonna it's gonna launch through IGN. Nice.
0: I just have one last question. And you talked about losing days going from twenty five to nineteen days. And can you explain yes. in your situation what attributed to the re like why? Why did you lose days?
2: Budget. So we didn't have the budget to shoot the twenty five days. And a lot of times, and I've heard a lot of times, you know, producers and you guys talk about it on the podcast. You know, people think when you go from when I did my half a million dollar movies to like, let's say, a seven million dollar movie, everyone thinks it's a linear growth, like dollar for dollar. But because of the union contracts and the support that the project needs, A lot of times on a $5 million movie, like when I did my half a million dollar movie, we shot that for 25 days. I've done a $900,000 movie in Louisiana where we shot 30 days. I shot a a $500,000 TV series for 32 days. But you know, my $7 million film that I shot in Chicago in 2007, uh, we shot like 27 days. So what happens is, you know, just because you have larger budgets does not mean that you're going to get the time to shoot it because, you know, the the budget goes for towards other things. So the the goal is to protect what's shown on screen. So I was trying to hold on to those 24 days, but then about three three weeks before production, it became clear that there's no way. So, so that's, it's budgetary, budgetary.
1: I also shot my first feature in 19 days, but not because I was going to shoot in 25, but because I was going to shoot in 15. And then I had to Got raise it. more money to get the days I needed to shoot the movie. But 19, I like it that there's someone else there within 19 days. Absolutely. So <laughs> <laughs> my last question is about, you know, making the jump from producing to directing because, you know, producer for a long time, you have like these really amazing projects, you know, lots of growth as you, in your producing career, which is really incredible. But did you ever find like when you were raising this money and like going to make this, this movie that's going to be over two million dollars? Did you ever feel like any pressure or like any questions from any of the financiers that like, oh, can you do you have the ability to direct this movie after this being your first feature at this this high of a budget amount or did that ever come up? Or was that just never a question because you knew these people, you already had the relationships?
2: No, that was definitely a definitely a question. You know that was the battle I would say from september twenty seventeen to about the beginning of twenty nineteen is to sort of show that I have the ability to direct this not not just at you know more than two million, even at half a million dollars like why why should we back someone like this it it came in degrees and and i and the first support that I got was from Todd Berger. So when Todd Berger got on board as producer, then a lot of people around it's like, okay Todd, Todd is part of. Some good projects, and you know he's been in the business for a long time. So there was a lot of trust in him, in his judgment, right? That was number one. Then number two, when we started going to actors, we we, we started talking to actors. And and Todd, after the casting director had provided it, I think it was a year later. It was towards the end of uh, twenty eighteen. I had this call with the first actor who was going to play Susan, and she 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 was not a big star, but she was well known as a character actor. In the circles. And after the call, she said, she passed on the role. She said, I'm not going to do the role. But she went back to her manager and said, But I would love to do another project with Naveen, you know, if he ever comes up with a project. So she had. Connected with me, but she didn't connect with the dark thriller aspects of the project. So the mm. manager called Todd and said, hey, this actor seemed to have really liked Naveen. So then the confidence increased where Todd said, okay, let's go to some more established actors. And and I have to give credit to Ralph. Ralph was the first actor that I ever spoke to. And uh, you know he came on a Skype call. And I was super nervous. And he came on the call and said, love the script. That's the first thing he said. And we hit it off. And he went back to his agents and said, I want to do this project. So it came in degrees, you know, uh, and, and once Ralph came on board, then a lot of other people started taking, paying attention. Wow. And yep, yeah.
1: It's really interesting because it's like, usually you hear like, oh, you have to do a test short or like, you know, make something that we believe in. But it, it's interesting to hear this whole side of it where it's like, it's just the confidence that people get in like your, your ability to take a meeting with an actor or you know have like a, a meeting with somebody that goes well and like that's the thing that like makes them say hey yeah he can do it that's But
0: you cool. secured the money you know like it was a combination of things but you were the point person for you were the financing producer for this project from what i can tell is that right
2: i would say one third
0: okay you know i was able so that's to bring still the a first... lot of responsibility how yeah. do yes. you not have brought those resources to the project, you might have been under a, a tougher gauntlet, I I presume.
2: Absolutely. But it, it also it was again, it was not like the, you know, docs money was there. We got to do certain things. Doc's, docs money disappeared, but we were on a path. We continued on that path. But then we had pressure. Hey, now we're telling all these people that there's money in the bank. So how do we now counter this? So it was like one pressure made us go solve a problem on the left. And then that pressure made us solve the problem on the right and back, you know. So it's just, again, going back to that one step at a time, you know, it's like, what's the next step? And what's the next step?
0: But it's magic because most people, and I know we're running out of time, but most people like, Will lie about the doc money situation. <laughs> you actually yes. had a situation where you had money, and then it 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 evolved and it changed to a different financing situation. So it's like you had this pretty magical scenario where you weren't lying and you got to progress with yes. your project. No, I'm thankful for that. I, I'm I'm forever
2: thankful to Doc for that, and and I can't wait to fly to Tucson and I have the screening. For Doc and and his you know his wife uh, Christine and luckily my sound mixer also lives in Tucson so it's going to be probably the three of us. <laughs> and awesome. We're going to watch it, you know.
0: Well, let's jump into the. I know we have like three minutes left. (laughs) But we'll do a rapid fire final six questions. And the first question is, what's the first film you made? And how do you feel about it now?
2: Uh, The first film I made is called Beyond the Soul. You know, I call myself a producer, but I was brought in to be an AD on the project. And I was not involved, you know, creatively in the process until we we started filming the director was was from India but what i feel about it is you know that got me started in the business but from a creative standpoint i couldn't be apart from 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 that vision of the project
1: so many parallels my first project i was an ad on a feature with a filmmaker from india Okay. I asked for a producer credit. They wouldn't give it to me because they said I didn't put any money into the
2: movie. So oh my God. I got screwed. I got screwed. But uh, so funny. Let me tell you actually in the film if you go back to it they did not give me a producer credit so if you watch the film there's no producer credit because they had already printed it but after it like when we were doing the festival runs and stuff they would address me as the they producer. Allowed, at least they but they but they gave you that they, they you know they didn't even give me that respect like the, there it. was oh. there was a
1: moment where the dp was like this he's like Ulrich is the producer of this movie he should have a producer credit. You guys are calling yourself producers. You're not producing. It was like a huge rant. And then, you know, I was like, so am I getting that producer credit? And they're like, well, we want to, but we can't. I'm like, Oh my God. Anyways, I know. I know. Anyways, (laughs) Back to the questions.
2: Yes. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I think it's from my mentor, Stephen Milburn Anderson, who directed the film South Central. He said three things I would say. He said, the process of making a movie is a process of making decisions. So he said, a director is nothing but a person who says yes and no's. And the second thing he told me is, there are only two shots in a movie. Don't get scared. Like when you're in the midst of it and you're getting thrown at a thousand questions. He said, there are only two shots in a movie. There is. A POV, and then there's the omniprocess, like what do you call it? The omni
0: An omniscient camera. Omniscient, already-
2: yeah, God's perspective. Then the third thing he said is the process of making a movie is the process of eliminating distractions. So those are the three things that I held on to my core while I was making this movie. Wow.
0: What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received?
2: Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. What's uh, let me ask that question to you? What's the worst uh, filmmaking advice you've gotten,
0: Alaric, Do you have one ready? I'm gonna think about it. Quit,
2: quit, quit the business. You know, get mm-hmm. a, get a real job. I've
1: heard that so many times. Where I'm like asking people, when I, especially as a young PA, you know, like what you, what, what do you, wish should I do? I want to get in the business, and like, oh, yeah, like yeah, be a lawyer, yeah. get into computer engineering. It's like, well, fuck you, dude. Like you're doing it. Like, well, give me something encouraging here.
2: Absolutely. I don't know. No, that, that I've heard a lot. You know, it's like, it's like, you should quit the business and get a real job or, but filmmaking wise, I would say they're like, Hey, why don't you figure out a real job in the film business? So you can, you can still be in the film business, but, but you can get a paycheck on a regular basis. Yeah. So I love that. Cause that's like what I did basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, yeah, like I, but, but, but no but
1: looking at you it's like you were like no i'm gonna actually just produce movies and that's gonna be my day job and it's like holy shit like
2: why didn't i think of that <laughs> no but during those times you know from 2002 to 2010 there were a lot of times I, I you know I, I did have part-time jobs and other things but while i was doing it because movies were like you know there would be a time you would make money and then while you're in development you know you're not making money so you have to figure out a way to make money during that process you know
0: i i'm trying to think of bad advice but honestly it's either in one ear out the other or no one gives me advice and that's not because i'm too fancy for someone to give me advice it's like they're just like there's liz i'm not going to give her advice I always want to hear the answer to those questions. They're my favorite questions because I never get to your advice. What's your goal as a filmmaker?
2: My goal as a filmmaker is to tell inspiring stories. That actually speak to me and in a way that I can share my experiences with the world. And I would say in a more literal sense, I'd I'd like to tell stories at the highest level possible, whether it's for entertainment or if it's for you know, like the great the greats that we've grown grown up with, whether it's on one extreme, like something like saving private Ryan or on the other extreme, something like Indiana Jones or that that's my dream you know, to, to to tell stories that um, inspire at a global scale, but at the same time, from, from my perspective. Beautiful. If you could go back in time, what's
1: one piece of advice you would give yourself? I would say don't take shortcuts.
2: I took a lot of diversions from the path. And in hindsight, a lot of time to get to the same goal. And in hindsight, looking at it, it's like, okay, I got a lot of experience from that. But had I just stuck with it and and said, look, it's a delayed gratification instead of short-term, these bursts of satisfaction, I would have probably achieved a lot of things that I wanted versus a lot of disappointment and a lot of quote-unquote failings. But that ultimately brought me back, back to the goal. So I would say the advice to myself would be not to take shortcuts, just stick with the course day in and day out and keep moving forward toward, towards that goal.
0: He is making movies hard.
2: Like my email to Alric, I would say making movies is impossible and impossible is nothing. Beautiful. Uh, So, yeah, where
1: should people go if they want to watch The Last Victim, if they want to learn more about you? Do you have a website, social media
2: handles? When's the movie coming out? Tell us all the good stuff. Absolutely. So, the film's coming out on May 13th and I'm happy that it's uh, Friday the 13th. So, the joke I have is... uh, who will be the last victim this Friday the thirteenth? My Linktree is probably the best way to contact me. So it's Linktree Film the Number Four Life. L I F E. And my website, my social media handles are all there. And I want to say I've been a fan of the show for a long time. And, you know, during I think it was right after we completed filming. And, you know, I told Gustavo, like, hey, when we're getting ready to release this film, I want to be on that podcast. <laughs> And and so, I somehow, Jedi mind-trick my way, way into this. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Naveen?
0: I remember him being a really good storyteller. I mean, that's genuinely what I remember. I remember, like, he... We asked questions. He answered the questions. Sometimes people don't answer the questions and they go off on these long tangents. But he answered them in this in this like really beautiful poetic way, where there was just like a long engrossing story that had a beginning, middle, and end, and took me to another place. And I remember Naveen like asked afterwards. He's like, "How'd it go?" And before, remember, before we even recorded, he was like, "Oh, I'm really shy." And then like, no, that shyness was not apparent at all. He was like just a very good storyteller and I loved how honest he was. I just thought, I thought it was a great show.
1: Yeah, I I did too and I thought it was not first off it was not at all what I was expecting. I was expecting a very different type of conversation and a very kind of different type of person to be honest. You know, hearing about his background as a producer and producing first and then leading into, you know, directing many many years later, I thought that was really fascinating and that, you know, he was able to to get this money together and and pull a budget together on a level that most indie filmmakers don't do for their first feature, but it was because of all the producing experience that he had. Like, he just had more avenues open to him through the work that he did as a producer so that when he was ready to make the jump to director, it's like he had this kind of this knowledge and that he was at a certain level that, like, kind of jumped a couple levels (laughs) for for most indie filmmakers, you know, like. Most of us don't start with Ron Perlman in our movies, you know, over a million dollar budgets. Like, that's just not what happens. But for him, it did. And like, you know, he got his uh, trailer premiered at IGN. You know, got like thousands and thousands of hits on the first day. It's like very cool stuff. So, I I was Mm -hmm. really excited to talk to him and just to kind of hear about the process and the way that he got to where he was because I thought that it was like he was rich or that he knew rich people. But it was not that at all. It was like a very processed approach. So, it was really cool to to just to hear all how how it all played out.
0: I know. As as you're talking to him also remembering all these other things that he mentioned, like how he could have moved to LA, but he decided to stay in Chicago. You know, how the relationships he had... I mean, it was like the relationships he had and the way he connected with people on a human level propelled his career as a producer and as a director. I mean, it wasn't some like factor of being in Los Angeles and connecting with 15 million, you know, wannabe studio types. It was making meaningful relationships outside of Los Angeles that actually turn things around for him i think that's really interesting too i'm excited i actually i think i'll actually watch this movie i'm gonna look into it
1: wow cool that's rare for me i like the trailer it's (laughs) really cool so yeah i hope i get i get a chance to see it too and yeah just the the whole story about him finding the writer and his relationship with the writer and how that whole went went, and then like you know his like vision quest or whatever he did in arizona is like (laughs) like wow like what a what a story like what a different way to approach it like i never really did anything like that to like mentally prepare myself to make i just made movies to mentally prepare myself to make movies i didn't like go through vision quests i mean i did run a couple marathons but that was like not part of the filmmaking that was just my own personal choice you know very fascinating fascinating conversation
0: well i have a conversation that i think will be half as fascinating and so i will attempt it here (laughs) So last week, we talked a little bit about, I mean, I guess our listeners should hear. So we recorded like a much longer conversation about press pieces. um, And I wanted to cut out like half of it because I felt like I went rogue in the middle of the conversation. I started bringing up other articles. I started talking about my feelings with regard to piracy. And I thought, well, let's just cut that out then. And let's bring it up in a whole new topic in the show. So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on piracy. Piracy came up last week because it was at the CinemaCon. They were talking about CinemaCon and they were talking about right. how piracy impacts, uh, you know, as soon as you do a day and date and as soon as a film's available on streaming, they, the, the argument was that piracy goes rampant. And what I said on the show last week that I asked to cut out, get cut out, is that I don't really care that much about piracy. Anyway, I will say more later, but I wanted to send it over to you to see what your thoughts are on piracy.
1: And when you say you don't care about piracy, do you mean you don't care about piracy of your own movies or you don't care about piracy in general of any movie?
0: I actually, I have only been thinking about it with regard to my films. But I think that the same argument could be applied to a lot of indie filmmakers who are quote-unquote emerging, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. the perspective of we're not making a lot of money anyway. We're being cut out of the conversation with regard to revenue. For the most part, this is a chance for some exposure. But I, I, I do want to acknowledge that people deserve to be compensated for their work and art does have value. So we'll acknowledge that right now.
1: Right. Well, Here, I had a long thing about piracy. Okay. So <laughs> when I was much younger, you know, when Napster and everything was happening, like I was like big into that, like downloading albums and everything. And then when I found out like, oh my gosh, you can download movies, you can download video games, you can download all these things for free. Like I was so into it and I was like totally a part of that and doing that and everything. And then at some point I, I, I you know, I just realized... That like for movies, it's like if I'm downloading the newest, like kind of whatever, because like I would download anything. Like I would download whatever I wanted, basically, just like whatever movie I could find. Like, oh, not the, the new movie, an older movie, like whatever movie that I was interested in watching. And I would just put on a thumb drive, put it into my PlayStation and then just watch it on my big screen, you know, just like anything else. And I think at some point I realized, well, if I can pay for it, like I should pay for it. Because if I don't pay for it, then I'm basically killing the industry that I'm begging to be a part of, that I'm like slamming my face against the wall every day, trying to make money as a filmmaker and trying to get my first feature made to like, you know, hopefully make a career out of this and get paid. It's like the least I can do is pay for the content I watch. So then I made a new rule that if I could buy it or, or rent it anywhere, I would do that before downloading it and i'd only download something if i just if there was no way for me to pay for it and that's sort of where i'm at now although I'd, i haven't really downloaded anything in a long time because you know you could you pretty much find anything and pay for it you
0: know except for so airheads that's sort of like
1: my uh, airheads wow really that's so funny well last i checked i love airheads <laughs> Airheads is amazing. <laughs> god i watch that movie so many times tbs man <laughs> so, <laughs> so- but that's like one part of it, right? But then for my own movies, it's like, yeah, I don't really care because it's like, you know, the more people who watch it, the better. Like, I'm not really making money. Although I, I did have a friend who made a movie and like, you know, it got pirated all over the place, and then he was like upset. So he's like, well, now like the little sales I did get, like I'm, I'm not going to get as many because it's all on these torrent sites already, you know. And to me, I think it's like inevitable. Like, like they're just, it's just gonna get on a torrent site, you know. So like. Like, why fight it? Like, why, you know, make a big deal? But, like, I'm not, like, pro it. I'm not like, yes, pirate my movie, please. Like, I do what I can to, to stop it. But, you know, it's pretty much, like, it's going to happen. Like, if you're sharing it with a bunch of film festivals, if you're sharing it, you know, through the internet, like, the the likelihood that it slips out somewhere, you know, through some firewall or something, like, it's bound to happen so I, I wouldn't worry about it too much I guess is what I'm trying to say as a per as a filmmaker but like I'm not going out there to support piracy like I'm trying to to I'm actively not being a part of it and just paying for my content and you know especially like if any filmmaker makes a movie and even if they send me a, 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 a like a digital link to watch it for free like I'll if I if I like the filmmaker and I like the movie like I'll rent the movie just to support them and like be one more view for them so Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, that's why that whole article is so stupid. It's just like, oh, we're we're fighting piracy. One week longer for Spider-Man not to be out with pirates. It's like, it's Gonna be out and and like, and the people who are watching it, like looking for it on torrents, they're not gonna give a shit if they have to wait one week versus one, you know, having it the day of. Like they don't care. Like I waited like six months for Spider Man to become available on digital so I could buy it for twenty dollars so I could watch it at home because I didn't want to go to the theaters at the time. You know. Like, but these pirates, like, they're people who are using them. One week's not gonna matter. Two weeks, not, months, not gonna matter. They're, they'll just wait until they can find it on their torrent, you know? So, yeah. I just thought that was just a whole, that's just like a bullshit, like, rah, rah meaningless speech <laughs> from that conference I just, and that the article that so the the, the news article like we were going to do a news article this week and it was almost like the same it was just another raw raw bullshit thing that is just like this is bullshit dude like you're just trying to like appease your 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 your, your stake your your stockholders your stakeholders Try to make them say like, yes, original TV, traditional television is still has a future. We just have to innovate it and think of it differently. And we'll, it's going to evolve, man. It's gonna, it's not gonna go away. It's gonna evolve. It's like, oh, shut the fuck up. It's going away. It's not gonna be there in 50 years. Or it's, if it is, it's gonna be such a smaller segment of the market. And that's what you're seeing in all these things is like, these people are getting so fat on such a big percentage of everything for, for the whole, like, existence of entertainment like like big networks big companies like owned everything and they had so many eyeballs just for them and now everything is separated and segmented and there's so many different ways you can get your content now those big pieces of the pie aren't there anymore and they have to fucking deal with it they gotta move on they gotta figure out other ways to make money stop trying to pretend that you can go back to the way it was no you can't it's gonna be we have a different future ahead of us anyway soapbox done
0: no, I like the soapbox. I'm also just thinking of, you know, I do sales and I, I talk to filmmakers regularly about their distribution situation as a consultant. And I've had clients come to me and they say, oh, I'm angry at my distributor. They didn't use any piracy takedown services. And if you go on Pirate Bay or whatever, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what people use anymore. You know, you see three pages of my Pirate film. Pirate Bay's dead. Okay. I really liked Pirate Bay. When it, that's the one I used a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> And I I think it's a fair concern. But I also think that the amount of stress that filmmakers have that they put towards anti-piracy measures is the ratio is unhealthy because the focus should be elsewhere. If someone's going to torrent something or if they're going to rip it, if they're going to pirate it, they're probably going to do it. They're going to find a way. They're going to find a way to do it. So ultimately you should be focusing your attention towards the audience that's going to properly compensate you for your work instead of paying for anti-piracy measures. And I think there's like a, what is it, law of diminishing return to this? Or I don't know what I'm saying, but my argument is that for the indie filmmaker who doesn't have a lot of resources, use the resources towards marketing. Don't use it towards, don't use that uh, money or your ire towards piracy. And use, utilize piracy to your own, to your own benefit. I had this guy, I think he's in Scandinavia. He said that he saw my movie, sent me an email and I was like, oh, how'd you see it? And he's like, oh, I I hope you're not upset. I pirated it. And I just sent $300 to your PayPal to apologize for it and to take you out for dinner. Wow. And it's like, wow. that's more money than I've made transactionally over the past few months. <laughs> with $300. Yeah. So, like, a lot. Yeah. I'm, and I'm totally okay. Like, someone saw the movie. He wanted to connect. He was saying, thank you for the experience. And we should focus on connecting with our audience rather than piracy. And I, I don't know. I think I too often make these stopwatch statements about how piracy doesn't matter. And I just thought we should have a conversation to put in the forefront that there are more important things. I mean, uh, your distributor should be marketing your film. That's the more important thing, you know? Right. You shouldn't have 15 million people taking percentage of your revenue. Like, those are more important things than it being on some sort of torrent service. That's all.
1: Right. Because I don't think it's like customers who were going to buy it online or whatever are like suddenly like oh it's a torrent oh I won't pay for it it's like there's people who download movies illegally and that's how they get their entertainment and there's people who pay for it and so I don't think you're losing out to a market if you you know if your movie gets pirated right like it's not going to be like and and the person who's like oh I heard about bread and butter let me see if I can download it for free if it's not on the torrent they're probably not going to go pay for it anyways they're just going to watch Frank the next movie else. yeah so yeah I feel like For us, especially for indie filmmakers, like getting that one fan who watched the movie, even though they pirated, but they felt compelled enough to email you and then even more compelled enough to send you $300. I know. Which is like, I don't know, a hundred movies, a hundred movie, movie nights right there or something like that's crazy. And it's like amazing. So that, I mean, I feel like it's like almost like a, like, yeah, you should have your movie pirated so you can find the super fan who wants to send you to dollars like that's probably better i don't know i'm not i'm not trying to advocate for it i'm just saying that like for for little guys like us it's it's just better to you know it's just people seeing it is better than people not seeing it is what i'm trying to say you know
0: i don't know if you're watching the new joe bob briggs season uh the last drive-in on shutter Uh, no former guest of the show joe bob briggs But he did Night of the Living Dead as his 100th episode. And he's got a really nice nice ending monologue for indie filmmakers and how we should never expect any revenue as a first-time filmmaker and emerging filmmaker and just to get it out there as fast as you can so that you can move on to the next project and really Mm. start to make an imprint on this industry. And I thought it was a really nice reality check for all of us. So, check it out.
1: Nice. Good old Joe Bob. Always got a great little thing for indie filmmakers. Love that guy. It's, it's it's really fun that we I just love that we had him on the show. and I love his show. It's pretty great. So I wanted to talk to you really briefly about one more thing. as long as yeah. we're not like over time. I lost my counter here. I usually have a little t- yeah I ticker. think we have a
0: few minutes. Oh. we're at thirty one.
1: okay. <laughs> I just want to know really quick. what are you watching? The three things you're watching right now, hit hit oh hit God and it could be whatever, oh, God. whatever you're watching.
0: Better call Saul because Sean makes me watch it Ooh. and I and it is rewarding. Yes, it's rewarding, but it, but he does make me watch it.
1: I'm addicted right now. I'm Since, so into it. Oh God, really I can't good. wait to watch the next episode.
0: The Mass singer every Wednesday because it is my favorite show, and is the only <laughs> thing that keeps me sane is the mass singer. Huh. <laughs> and and we just watched Shakma. Which is a really silly horror film that I think Lucas Colshaw recommended to me. I need to like check my sources wow. on that one, but it's about a baboon, a rabid baboon killer. Okay, Ooh. now you.
1: So, Better Call obsessed, just love it. We just finished Minx, which was great. Um, Jake Johnson is super- my, it's
0: on the list. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's really good. And, you know, I have not been the biggest fan of him. I I find him okay. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's entertaining enough. Fine. Whatever. But, like, this was like, oh, he's a great actor. I was like, this this movie, this show won me over with him. So, if you're a Jake Johnson fan, then you're going to fucking love this show. It's really good. Also, period piece. Also, just really funny. And then, yeah, I mean, movies, like, I watched. Pig was the latest <gasps> thing I've loved. Pig. I tried watching The Green Knight. I hated it. I hated The Green Knight. It put me to sleep. It was so boring. It's on
0: our list. Oh, but have David, you seen it? Well, it's on our list. It's, we're watching Come On, Come On, and then The Green Knight after that. But do you like? Oh, da- I like David Lowry a lot. Have you? Did you like the Ghost I haven't Story seen movie any his other
1: movies? Okay, no, but like. it's just i hope his other movies are better than this because i feel bad if if that's this is what his filmmaking is because it was like devoid of uh any kind of emotion or feeling or any way of like connecting with the characters it was just beautiful it was like beautiful set piece beautiful this so beautiful it's like the most beautiful intricate like design and shot and whatever But, like, and and fine performances even, but just, like, the story, like, nothing to grab me to make me give a shit, and, like, nothing about the characters that made me even give a shit. I didn't care. It just, I don't give a shit. Like, it's like, it's the most beautiful thing in the world, but I'd rather sleep than watch this, because I just do not care about anything, any of the characters. It's like, I I should, though, because it's such a cool story, it's such a cool idea, but he's he's managed to take... Something that's so beautiful and such an interesting concept and make the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't even know how he did it. And I'm sorry, David Lowery, to be so ne- – I know because, like, I know people love him. I've talked yeah. to people who know him. Yeah. I'm sure he's a wonderful person. I know he's obviously very talented. But, like, my God, like, I don't understand, like, how this happened. I don't even know how A24 decided that this was a script to go with because it's like, really? I mean, you look at the trailer and you're like, this is going to be the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. This looks amazing. Like, I, I can't wait. But then when you watch the actual movie, you're like, all these talented people. And, like, this is what we have? <laughs> Man, I'm sorry to hate it so much, but I want you to watch it to tell me why I'm wrong. Because uh, I'm i have wrong. Yeah,
0: you, you know I'm going to watch it and be like, oh, I love this. This is amazing. And you know it's probably going to be stoked <sighs> by this, what you just did. Like maybe what yeah, I thought was mediocre love it before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm now just going to like go full in on my licorice pizza. And maybe pizza. it all pays off yeah.
1: in, the, in the end of the movie. But like after an hour and 45 minutes... Like, and having to wake myself up twice because I was so bored to tears. I just, I couldn't, I was m- so mad at the movie. Cause it's cause what it is, it's like all these little short stories they took from like this old old poem and they tried to string them together to tell one's like long narrative but it's like you could tell they're like little tiny little poem stories from like the 1800s or whatever and it's like middle ages i think even like super old and they're like they should have been short films it's not a feature it's like little shorts but anyways i don't know Universe, tell me why I'm wrong. P- people told me why I'm wrong about licorice pizza, so please tell me why I'm wrong about The Green Knight because obviously a lot of talent went into making it. I just wish it was better.
0: Well, that's a good that's a good call to action. So if you want to write in and throw your weight behind Alrick's <laughs> argument against The Green Knight or if you want to you know, debate with him a little bit, send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. That would be very much appreciated. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want to celebrate the International Screenwriters Association an organization designed to connect writers through filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. Head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We want to thank Naveen for coming on the show. Thanks to our listener, Gustavo Martin, for introducing us to Naveen and making all this happen. Thank you to our fantastic editor, Jeff Freimuth, for doing the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week.
1: Um, should I do one more? Excited. And here's our chat with Naveen Puram. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> you can do whatever one you want, Jeff. It's up to you. Uh, probably the first one is less silly.